Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ulysses Pina, who is an assistant professor of history. And today, we're doing another Pandemics Perspectives episode talking about pedagogy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pina. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. I'm really glad that you're here. To start us off, I wonder if you will tell us a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, um, I am a Long Beach native. I work at California State University, Long Beach, which is, uh, you know, I, 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 it's really rare to, to actually get a tenure track job in your hometown. Um, when I went to graduate school at UC San Diego, um, I assumed I would just go work somewhere else in the country. Um, so it's a, it's a privilege to be back in my hometown, um, but also a really rewarding experience. So you've been in Long Beach basically your whole life? That's correct. Um, I, well, sort of. I lived here until I was 17, um, and then I moved away to college. I went to the University of California, Riverside, which is just about a 55-minute drive from here, um, which was great because I was able to come back and visit my parents uh, on the weekends. And have you lived anywhere else or was that your, your one yeah. stint? I lived in San, actually, I, I stayed at Riverside for uh, five years. I was a student athlete. Um, I was a track runner. Um, I, I registered a season, so I stayed five years. And um, the history faculty um, encouraged me to do a master's there. Um, so I stayed an additional two years. Uh, I studied Latin American history. Um, then after that, uh, they offered me, I had the opportunity to, to stay on as a PhD student there or apply elsewhere. And they, they encouraged me to apply elsewhere, um, mainly because I'd been there seven years. <laughs> they were like, you should go, you know, explore and, and, and go to another institution and, and grow as a, as, a, as a scholar. And I ended up going to UC San Diego. And then did you come directly to Long Beach after completing the PhD in San Diego, or did you detour anywhere else before settling back in Long Beach? I, I did not. I, I, I detoured. Um, I applied to the Consortium for Faculty Diversity at Liberal Arts Colleges, which is a, a fellowship that is meant to help you know bring diversity, uh, diverse faculty members to uh, small liberal arts colleges. Um, I applied and kind of forgot about the application, to be honest. Um, and then I got an email from Colorado College uh, saying they were interested in interviewing me for a postdoc. Um, and I spoke with the chair and they flew me out for a campus visit. And I 
was awarded the postdoc. And honestly, that really changed my academic trajectory uh, because it was the first time I actually got some real hands-on classroom experience. Um, and it was an interesting format that they have at Colorado College. Um, they don't have a regular semester. They have blocks. And each block, each block is about three and a half weeks. And students only take one class at a time. So one block at a time. There's four blocks in a semester. So it was, it was really being thrown into the fire, sort of learning how to teach every single day for three hours at a time. Um, and I think I was a lot better for it. And I became uh, much better in the classroom, but also just learning how to manage the classroom and, and how, to, how, to, how, to, how to be a professor in the classroom. And I think that was, that was major. It sounds like it would change what you assigned as well. If you know they only have three and a half weeks to complete, for example, a major project, it has to be something that even a dedicated student could do in three and a half weeks. Absolutely. Um, I, I always tell the story about my first day. Uh, I, I wasn't familiar with the system, with you know, with checking the rosters, and I show up to my first class and I only had three students. <laughs> I was like, great, what am I going to do now with three students? <laughs> Um, so I, I actually had to just run it as a, a directed reading of sorts. Um, I had to completely rewrite my syllabus, um, and it was actually really helpful. Um, I mean, the students, the three students were great. They, they, they paid attention. It's really awkward to just lecture to three students. So I had to, I had to come up with much more creative ways to, to engage them. Um, we had the, uh, the fine arts center. Uh, they had a great colonial um, collection on Latin America, so I was able to make use of that. So it did; it, it, it made me it allowed me to take chances in the classroom, uh, at least for that initial class. But the other classes were regular size, and and you know it, it allowed me. And that, and you're absolutely right; it did uh, force me to to rethink my assignments, um, to rethink the amount of reading that I was going to assign. Um, it, it's really hard to ask somebody to read a book in one night, but at that institution, one night, one one day is like it's supposed to be a week. Um, so it, it's a difficult. It, I had to rely a lot on my uh, colleagues who were obviously experts in this and had done this for years. And that was, you know, it, it was a good introduction to, to being a professor. It sounds like that early flexibility and adaptability was going to serve you in 2020 and 2021 in ways you could not foresee Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I never, I didn't really think about it until you just brought that up. Um, I, my entire teaching career has been so far, uh, just adapting, <laughs> adapting to new systems. Um, even when I arrived here, uh, all my undergraduate education, my graduate studies, they were all on the quarter system. Um, so arriving to, uh, Colorado college, which is on a semester system, but not really, it kind of goes at its own pace. Um, well, you know, I had to adapt instantly um, to, you know, the, the requirements of the institution, but also uh, the student demographic uh, and, and sort of what life as a faculty member is, attending faculty meetings. Um, even though I didn't have service obligations there, um, you know, I was still involved uh, in the community a little bit. Uh, you know, I participate in town halls. But even arriving here at California State University, Long Beach is a semester system, and I had never actually taught on a semester system before. And I was only here for, um, you know, a year and not even a year. And then the pandemic happened. So I only got one and a half semesters of actual in-person instruction. Then, you know, in the middle of, of spring 2020 semester, they were just, they just told us to kind of figure it out. <laughs> so I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, the, having this background, being able to adapt to different situations was uh, 
I think, instrumental in me having a, as best of a semester as I could and even planning in the fall. So what attracted you to, to that campus and to that position? Well, the realities of the job market are that you really don't have too many options. Um, I study Latin American history, um, and it's a really competitive field. Oftentimes, there's a position for Latin American history, and it's open. So it's colonial, modern. So I assume there are there are hundreds of applications that you know people that I'm compete that uh, that I was competing against. Um, I was really fortunate. Um, a lot of it is luck um, and just sort of the right uh, advertisement. Uh, they were looking for a modern Mexicanist historian, and that's my research specialty. Um, and when I saw it, I, I instantly, like, I thought, like, that, that job was written for me. Um, and I even got a couple of text messages when the, um, when the job advertising came out, people saying, you definitely need to apply. Like, you will be really competitive for that job. Um, I applied, and <clears throat> I remember it was, like, a terrible job market. Um, I wasn't getting too many inter- interviews. I had a few interviews. Um, I had... And, and you know, I, got, I got this interview. I remember looking at the email and I was super excited and I was thinking, I, I, but I didn't want to get too excited either because I didn't want to feel disappointed, especially because I feel, I felt like the stakes were really high. This is my hometown. And, you know, I started academia thinking that I would never return to my hometown, that I would be, uh, a, you know, a, a Long Beachian or a native um, Southern Californian and, and essentially an exile somewhere else in the United States. Um but yeah, I was really fortunate to to, uh, to to apply to get the interview and um, and get the on campus visit. And I, I would say the on campus visit was easy because I, I felt like I, I was one of those students that I'm teaching here. Um, you know, I came from a working class background, the son of uh, of uh, Mexican immigrants with a sixth grade education, and um, you know, I, I feel like I do understand the students here, and it's motivated me to to even want to take on a greater mentorship uh, position here. Uh, I'll, I'll be the undergraduate advisor for spring 2022. I've also started participating in a lot of mentorship programs here on campus and even in the community. So it, it was it was a perfect storm uh, for me to, to get this job here. And it sounds like your professors when you were an undergrad really mentored you. They're the ones who said, hey, stick around and do a master's. And then when you were a little too comfortable, they're like, no, go stretch your wings and try another school. So it sounds like you had some key mentors and advisors taking interest in you early on. Absolutely. And it's happened at every single stage, um, which is why I'm kind of doubling down on, uh, on, on wanting to mentor local high school students here in Long Beach. Um, I was a student athlete, and for me, that was the pathway to academia, which might seem kind of a contradiction. Uh, student athletes often get a bad reputation, um, but I was always in magnet programs since seventh grade. Um, but I, I would say I was probably like an average student. I was never like the top of the class, and I, I was just in the middle. I think I was in the middle of my graduating class, but I was really exceptional on the field. I was a runner. Um, I was disciplined. Um, and, and I think that really helped. And having a coach early on, to kind of you know, believe in your talent. Um, I, w- I, I was I was I was pretty good as a high school runner, and I was recruited, um, you know, by UC Santa Barbara, um, UC Riverside, and Long Beach State, where I currently work, um, only offered me books, and they they said I should live at home, and so I didn't want to do that. I wanted to move out. Um, but I was very fortunate because I was deciding between UC Santa Barbara and UC Riverside, and I felt I felt more at ease at UC Riverside. I like the coaching staff. Um, 
uh, I, I felt like they would take much more of an interest in me and I wouldn't just be somebody else on the team. Um, and, and that's what ended up happening. We had a very talented group. Uh, the coaches really cared. Um, and I entered my undergraduate career with no major. I was undecided for about two and a half years until they said I had to decide on a major. But I actually just first decided to major in Spanish because I was very interested in learning how to read and write in Spanish at a high level. Um, I grew up bilingual, but my parents uh, never really taught me how to you know, read and write in Spanish. So I had to kind of learn that on my own, but also learn it at, at a higher level. Um, but that was my entryway into history. Uh, UC Riverside has a cultural studies option. So I was able to study a lot of Latin American history in Spanish um, and from that perspective. And that motivated me more to want to take courses in Latin American history. And uh, UC Riverside has an amazing, Latin, they have amazing Latin Americanists. Uh, they're spectacular. Um, but more so, they were really good at identifying talent. Um, and I still remember one of the meetings that actually one of my teammates was having with, uh, with Dr. Brennan, Professor Brennan, um, who is a specialist on Argent modern Argentine history. Um, he was having a meeting with them, and I don't know, I guess he found out my, my, my teammate was a runner, and then he asked about me. He's like, oh, how's, uh, how's Ulysses doing? And my teammate came back and told me, and I was like, he knows who I am. I had no idea he knew who I was. Um, and I think that that's one of the great things about an institution like UC Riverside. It's a major university, but it still retains a small college feel um, because the university had grown tremendously since the 1990s. And I think I really benefited from that at UC Riverside. Um, and you're right. Uh, th they did encourage me to, to grow, to, to apply elsewhere. And at, at UC San Diego, I got great mentorship, too. Uh, um, Professor Hunefel was was amazing at not only creating a cohort experience, but also checking in, checking in with us, uh, inviting us out to eat, and um, kind of building a sort of camaraderie within uh, the small cohort that we had of Latin Americanists. And also my main advisor, uh, uh, Doctor or Professor Van Young, um, who, you know, in my opinion, is one of the top uh, historians of of Mexico, and he would take time to 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 tell me to pay attention to the small things. Um, and I think that not only is translated in my research, but it really has translated in how I approach uh, pedagogy and how I, I, how I approach teaching in the classroom. So you got your dream job and you're there for like a year and a half and then the world falls apart on you. Absolutely you did. <clears throat> and I'm a, I'm a parent, I have a, I have a three-year-old toddler and he was, you know, we'd moved from Colorado Springs. He was born in Colorado Springs um, and he had just started his daycare um, that fall. So he's essentially going there for three months and then all of a sudden his whole world changes. Uh, and now we're on lockdown. Um, I, my wife is also an academic. We're in the same department and she also has to adjust to the same things I'm facing. Um, it was, uh, it, it was quite the disaster, but somehow we survived <laughs> Uh, we survived, we made it work. Um, you know, the fortunate thing is that my wife is on opposite schedule as me. So I, I teach Monday, Wednesdays, and she, she teaches Tuesday, Thursdays. So this pandemic has made us wear multiple hats. Um, not that we don't in real life, um, or in normal times, but it's, it's made wearing multiple hats and we'd have to, we, we have to do it with a lot of precision. So take us back to that. Um, your school is on a semester system. So 
I'm guessing spring semester was already underway when you found out that you were going to pivot to face from face to face to online. Can you take us back to around March of 2020 when things were still open and take us to the moment when everything started to change? It's, I feel like it's just so far away. Uh, one of the things that I'm remembering, I had a season ticket pass to watch the LA Galaxy play, and I was so excited for the year. Uh, I went to the first home opener, and it was like it was amazing. We were start we started off really good, and then I I listened to NPR a lot, um, and I remember they were talking about this, and I was just thinking like, why isn't anybody taking this serious? Like this seems like it's really serious, like it has a potential to really get bad. Um, and people in the department were already talking about it well before um, we suspended uh, classes. Um, and I, I was teaching a seminar, a 499, which is our senior seminar, our research senior seminar, the last class students take before they graduate. Um, and, I, and, and they're working on topics on Latin America related to revolutions and social movements. And I remember clearly, vividly having a conversation with them saying, it sounds like we're probably going to have to suspend uh, in-person instruction. And who knows what's going to happen with the library. Um, I, I even told them, like, take time after class to go to the library and make sure you check out every single book you might need. Uh, and in hindsight, that was, that was great because they were able to do that and actually finish the semester strong, um, especially when they're relying on primary sources and secondary documentation to write advanced uh, senior seminar papers. But th- that, that's what I remember of that time, sort of uncertainty, but also uh, fear, but also knowing that now we have to come up with an entire plan. I am uh, in my first year as an assistant professor and now I have to not only um, learn how, how to, I not only have to balance being a, a dad and being daycare, but also um, rewriting my syllabus to meet the demands of different classes because we all teach different classes. They're not just lecture-based classes. Um, I was also teaching a methods course, which requires you know interaction that's in-person. So then you have to sit down and rethink, how am I going to replicate that in-person engagement uh, That that is at the core of, uh, of any liberal arts education, but even more so, especially in a formative course that is teaching first, second year students how to be historians. And listeners live all over the world. So if we can situate Long Beach for them a bit, it's in LA County, is that correct? And LA County very quickly emerged as a hotspot of just enormous COVID numbers. Yeah, uh, you know, Long Beach is interesting. It's a very interesting city. We have about almost a half million people. Uh, we have our own health department, so we have autonomy in terms of the types of decisions that we can make, but we tend to follow Los Angeles. So whatever Los Angeles does, we follow suit. Um, I would say it wasn't an issue right away, right? Because there was so much we didn't know. I actually remember, I, I recently, I went back and looked at my old syllabi from that semester. Um, I had various reiterations even during the pandemic era. Um, and one of the things I remember is that we thought we were going to go back. Uh, we thought this was just a temporary suspension. And even the emails that in, the administration was sending us, there was this optimism that we would return that quickly disappeared. Um, Los Angeles, I think, became much more of a hotspot a bit later. And I think it really did affect us um, in the fall um, in terms of dealing with this. But one of the scary things was was getting emails uh, from my students, not only about the extra hours they had to put in and everything else, but also a lot of their families being impacted by the, the pandemic, whether they were essential workers or essential workers themselves or coming down with COVID. 
which I had quite a few students myself. Um, so that, that was very difficult to, to balance. Um, but, I'll, but being compassionate and being uh, empathetic and not sympathetic, I think, uh, really helped me um, at least navigate this as a new assistant professor. How do you convey that via email? Or do you make additional uh, offers of support to the student, phone call, FaceTime, something? Because that's catastrophic for that student's world. Absolutely. It's, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, I would say one of the ways that, that I did it, I completely I completely changed my, my way of communication. Uh, I... I never emailed as much and I never used Beachboard, which is our Blackboard um, uh, comparable uh, application. I never used it as much, um, but we have a news function and I was constantly sending updates like every other day about what is due, about uh, what has changed and just keeping students in the loop. And it seems like they really appreciated that. And actually that's something I'm going to keep well into um, you know next year and beyond. Um, but it's just, just, Showing actually being open, vulnerable with the students and, and saying, like, I understand that we're all going through this terrible situation. None of us have imagined even going through this a year ago. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I, I was open and honest about my own struggles, uh, about not having daycare, um, about sort of struggling, trying to balance, find, finding time uh, not only to teach, but also apparently to do research uh, because, you know, I, I'm on the tenure clock. Um, but I would say... You know, being open, honest, flexible, and I think flexible is the number one thing. And that's one of the things the students have greatly appreciated, um, you know, because these deadlines are arbitrary to begin with. Uh, we, we put it mainly because, you know, there, there's a certain pedagogical thought that goes into it where we want them to take something out. We want them to understand the course at a certain pace. We want them to absorb knowledge at a certain pace, um, you know, because we have a vision for the course. But I think letting go of that a little bit and feeling comfortable with cutting things out um, and also being flexible with deadlines and, and um, you know, even changing some assignments. Uh, for example, in my History of Mexico course, we had a research paper and I, I, I had to scrap that. And I just, I, I had to go back to a prompt and I, made, I only allowed them to use sources that they had already read for the class. You know, they appreciated that given how difficult it was to have access to the library, which was closed. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. For your students, you mentioned that many of them are from a working class background. I'm trying to imagine when they were considering what resources they needed 
to go to college. It was a difficult thing for them to be really weighing out that they come in with a greater deal of stress than, than a middle-class student because there's so many resources that are more complex to source for them. But there's a reliance that the campus is going to be able to provide some things like very reliable Wi-Fi, uh, quiet workspaces in the library, et cetera. And those are all suddenly pulled away from all the students, but it doesn't affect them all the same way. So for the working class students, how are they accessing Wi-Fi? How are they finding enough um, resources to scramble and keep going? It, it, it is heartbreaking. Um, here at Long Beach State, uh, we have, if I remember the statistics, the statistics correctly, we have about 42% Latinx students. We have about 33% first-generation uh, students. And that, that's a sizable. That doesn't necessarily map onto an economic uh, you know, class, but it's indicative of the, te- you know, the, the demographic we're teaching. Um, and I was just heartbroken. Um, I think back to, to my own experience as an undergraduate, uh, coming from a working class background and just having to, to navigate this. Um, I think I would probably fail miserably, um, especially if I had to move back home. Um, you know, my parents mean well, but they, they don't, they really don't understand even to this day what I do for a living. And that, and that's completely fine. They're, they're proud of me and everything else. And I don't expect them to know the day to day of uh, what I do, what I do for a living. But it was very heartbreaking to, to see that, to see students go through that type of struggle. And one of the things that I tried to do was, was, was you know, tell these types of stories, but also just, just listen, uh, even at office hours. Uh, that was one of the things, it was, it was just really heartbreaking, um, you know, seeing students having to take a class uh, in a parking lot here, here on campus, um, other instances of, uh, you know, people walking in or, you know, on, on my end, having to teach to a sea of uh, black squares. Um, and that itself is really demoralizing too. So, it, you know, that, 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 all, that all is interconnected. I remember one class, I, I just, I was, I was extremely frustrated because it, it, it's very difficult to get excited, to get motivated when um, you, don't, you can't see the student's reaction on their face. Um, I remember expressing that I was, it was really demoralizing. Uh, and then I, after I said that, there was like a, like, like six uh, black squares all of a sudden illuminated. But we have a policy here at the university, and I think it comes from the chancellor's office, that uh, we're, we, can't, we can't force students to turn on their cameras. And I think that's, that's in place rightly so, because we don't know that you know, every student has their own particular circumstance. Um, and there was issues of uh, Wi-Fi uh, connectivity, and there still is. I'm teaching a summer course. Uh, people are going in and out. So I think as an instructor, you also have to be, you have to be flexible. Uh, you have to be flexible, adaptable, um, and, uh, you know, yeah, that, that's what I would say. Is there, are there conversations going on with the higher-ups at your university um, about um, support that students are going to need, things like a, a longer timeline, Um I don't know. I, I don't know how to fill in the blank, but I, I would imagine those conversations are, if they are happening, are about professors like you sharing their information, obviously protecting the students' confidentiality, but saying, here's a here's a number of concerns I have, that students are coming in stressed out, they're, they're going to be returning to a reopened campus, having endured all of these various things. How are we ready to support 
and help them in a in a reopened campus because we can't just open the doors um, and restart from where we paused. Uh, I would say, you know, as critical as a lot of people have been about the CSU system as a whole, I would say they have done a lot of things right. Um, they've also done a lot of things wrong, but they have done more right than wrong. Um, they were, I believe, one of the first universities to say we were going to suspend, uh, you know, the in-person. They were also the first university system to say in the fall, we're not going back. Um, and even recently, they had they just said that we're not, uh, you, you, to return, you have to have a vaccine pending FDA approval. Um, and that goes for staff, that goes for faculty, and that goes for students. And I think that's, I think that's just a step in the right direction to get us in normal times again, but you know they, they've done a lot. They, they did a lot during the summer too, in terms of professionalization. Um, they had a lot of workshops. Uh, some of them were even paid to incentivize faculty to learn the new technology, to uh, learn how to reorganize their course. Um, so they've done a lot on that front. Um, and I think you do raise up a good point. And I honestly don't know the answer to that, but this is a problem. Um, you know, a lot of these students have only known online education. Um, at least at this level, and it's going to be it's going to be very difficult uh, to to navigate that that to navigate that sort of transition. Um, I'm hoping a lot of the the social pressures that our current students are, are dealing with, I'm hoping that dissipates a little bit, but um, there's no guarantee of that. So uh, I, I hope you know the administration does respond to this, and I hope they do consult us. Um, but I hope they also consult the students themselves because um, I, I do think the students uh, should should have a voice in this process of uh, what we're calling repopulation. And repopulation will be happening um, in August or is it already happening now with summer school? I know you're teaching uh, summer courses. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was it was interesting. I say interesting because they made us decide really early whether we wanted to return to in-person instruction in the fall. Uh, and this was before the vaccine was even widely circulated. And as we've all know, we've lived through this historical moment uh, there, you know, we were finding things out in real time. Um, so they made us decide whether we, we wanted to go in person or remain remote for the fall. And I chose remote because um, I have a son and I didn't know if I could, you know, spread the virus to him. Um, and a lot of faculty members had those types of concerns as well. But also I think the university as well didn't want everyone to return because we only have a certain amount of classrooms that can that can sit that that can like that where where we can have that many students in the classroom where it's safe. Um, so right now, I think a lot of our smaller classes are going to be in person. Like students uh, classes that are about fifteen students. Uh, the large lecture halls are going to remain uh, remote, um, and some of the you know thirty plus uh, student classes are going to remain remote. I think the long term vision is that spring twenty uh, twenty two is when we'll be in person and things will resume um, pre pandemic. So as I'm taping with you now, you're on campus in your office, mm -hmm. you teach from your office and your students are remote, but when they repopulate in the fall, you'll teach remote from home? Uh, yes, but they do have an option. I, I can still teach from my office as well, but they do have a high flex option where uh, some students can remain remote and some students are in person. Uh, I didn't sign up for that, um, but I know there are some 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 colleagues on campus that are taking advantage of that technology. Uh, but here I, you know, I, I, I'm approaching fall just as I approach spring, uh, sorry, fall 2021 and spring 2020, 
So what are some of the um, pitfalls or, or unexpected challenges you've had from uh, working remotely? Um, you know, I'll start with the, with the first one, uh, with the most recent one. I was having office hours with a student yesterday. Uh, and they were at a coffee house and everything is reopening here in Southern California. Uh, so students can, can, can go to coffee houses now. Um, it was one of those coffee houses that had really loud music. Um, so it, you know, I could barely hear what the student was saying. But at the same time, I'm on campus and we have an impeccable campus. The landscaping is beautiful and they do a tremendous job of, uh, of keeping it up here. Uh, but they were trimming the bush right next to my window. <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was quite, it was chaos. It was chaos to try to have office hours and, and a conversation. And the student had added my class late. So I was trying to bring her up to speed on what is required for the student to, to make up the work and how we can keep them on pace, given that summer session is an accelerated course. Uh, another, uh, in, uh, another thing that we struggled with was internet. Uh, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that struggled with this, but, uh, I think we, in hindsight, we should have probably paid more for the better internet, <laughs> uh, because when you have two people working from home with a toddler running around, uh, who also requires some sort of uh, tablet or TV time to let you actually teach your course, uh, that you know you find you quickly fi- find out that uh, that needs to be upgraded. But then you're but then it was in the middle of the pandemic and we were uh, unsure about you know whether it's safe to have somebody come into your home with a mask, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of uncertainty. And the pandemic was a tough time to make uh, choices about spending more for so many people. While you can, in hindsight, say we should have upgraded our Wi-Fi, when I was presented with that option, I was like, well, I picked this Wi-Fi because of my budget. And that was a budget in a world where there was no pandemic. I don't know what my budget is going to be in a pandemic world. I don't know that I can commit to spending more, even for something so necessary. The, The math to figure out how we allocated resources uh, became very difficult, particularly for people like me who are who are contingent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that that was that was difficult. Um, you know, my, my wife is also a contingent faculty member, and that, that was something you know we were wondering. Well, what's going to happen to contingent faculty members? Are they going to cut jobs? Um, you know, we were also thinking about you know we were hearing all these horror stories at other universities as well about even tenure track jobs being cut. Um, so there, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of what higher education is going to look like after the pandemic. Uh, fortunately, here in California, it seems like things are coming back. Uh, you know, the, the budget from the governor it looks good, and it looks like they're doubling down and reinvesting in education. So hopefully that trend continues. So you haven't had any concern that your department is going to be downsized or gutted. There are some, referring back to what you just mentioned, there are some departments where they've just said, well, we don't, we don't need history professors anymore. We don't need classics anymore. They just, the, the line items of entire uh, subjects that are being removed has been staggering. As you said, for many of us watching it, uh, we didn't know that could happen, but it sounds like um, in the uh, state system in California, they're preserving departments. Uh, I think a lot of that, I, I need to give a lot of credit to my colleagues too. They did a wonderful job of structuring the major. Uh, we're, I think we have the second most uh, history majors in the country. Um, we have, you know, we almost have forty thousand students on this campus, but we're actually the only history major that's actually gained majors, or the history program that's gained majors. So our numbers have actually increased. I think from like a, 
I don't remember the year, but over a five-year period, we actually gained 17% more history majors. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, curriculum reform. Uh, well, you know, the professors in this department got together and decided that they were going to reorganize our core curriculum sequence. So now students have to take a 301 course, which is uh, uh, which is um, historical methods. Uh, they learn sort of the basics in and outs of what historians do, um, you know, what a primary source is, secondary source, historiography, and they write a 10-page research paper. The second sequence is a theory and history course, um, which and they learn how to how, how to think hist- uh, theoretically, but also uh, write a historiographical paper. That's something I didn't learn until I was in graduate school. Um, and then they uh, finish with the senior seminar in their area of focus. And I think sort of having that structure, uh, I think it retains a lot more students because they not only become excited about being history majors, but they have some sort of investment. And along the way, they also do portfolios where they reflect on what they've done, uh, what they've done, what they've learned in the major, what was difficult. Um, and I think having that reflective component is is crucial. And, and, and I think, you know, the history department here has done a wonderful job of cultivating that type of culture. And I think that that helps. And, you know, having enrollment numbers high, I think, also makes a strong case for why history matters. You mentioned that coaches and mentors and professors were really important uh, for you as you were coming up all the way through higher ed. Um, how does the department now um really support each other during the pandemic specifically? Are, are there ways that you all do a virtual Zoom dinner? How are you maintaining your um, personal ties and connections, which are really so crucial to being able to be collegiate with each other? You can't just talk work all the time and still get along. That's one of the things I miss the most about being in person, uh, besides being in the classroom, uh, the hallway. Um, this department is so collegial um, and I miss being able to walk over to uh, one of my colleagues' office and ask if they want to go get a cup of coffee. And you walk around, you chat, you, de- you debrief, you talk about your day, you talk about uh, strategies, new strategies that you're trying in the classroom. But then you hear about how they approach things. And for me, that, that's also part of the learning experience, learning how to be a professor, learning how to be the best teacher that you possibly can. Uh, and here at Long Beach, we're we're, we're half and half. We're, you know, we do research, but we're also primarily a teaching institution. Um, and I think it, it's a craft. Uh, it's not something, it's not a cookie cutter mold where you just sort of read stuff and that's it. You have to learn the craft of how to be an effective teacher. And that takes time and that takes experience and that takes multiple failures. Uh, but also having someone with more experience to not only learn from, but also talk about sort of those failures with, but also the successes in the classroom. I think that's instrumental for any young instructor um, who's freshly finished with their PhD. But also, it's inspiring seeing colleagues that have been here for 15, 20 years who are still excited to be in the classroom. And that, I think that speaks volumes about not only the institution, but the department culture and the students themselves. The fact that um, people have been here for quite a while, but they still love their job. So are you able to talk to them about your tenure clock concerns? Uh, that was a, that, that was another stressor. Um, very early on, the administration made the decision that we were going to get an extra year if we so wanted it. And I think it was, it was, it, it was, it was welcomed. Uh, they did, they, we had to decide then, but we also had the decision to wait, see how everything played out and decide the following year as well, whether we wanted the extension on the tenure clock. Uh, I personally, I didn't take it, 
Um, I don't know how I managed to get any research done, but I did. Um, and that involved me waking up beginning in July uh, before my son woke up at like 4.30 in the morning and getting about three hours of writing in or until he woke up. Sometimes it was like 6.30. And I managed to, to finish an article um, and it recently got accepted for publication. Um, and I, so I finished that in the summer and I felt good about it. I feel like, okay, even if nothing else happens in the fall, I'm 100% okay. And nothing happened in the fall. I, so I was very fortunate that I was able to, um, you know, finish that project in the summer. In the spring, I think I felt a bit more comfortable, uh, especially not the first half. The first half was terrible, but the second half, my son went back to daycare. And when he went back to daycare, that opened up a possibility, <laughs> like an amazing possibility. Like now we have help. Um, and I was able to, to, to rewrite my uh, book proposal, which is ready to submit now and, and rework a chapter as a writing sample. So I was able to maintain some sort of research agenda um, and it just makes me think, wow, like, I, I don't know how I was able to do that. It's just, it's incredible. It's superhuman. Um, I got my reviews back and they were glowing um, about the research productivity. Uh, fortunately for me, my, my evaluations were great too in the, in the classroom. So I, I you know, it, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Um, on paper, it seems like it wasn't. Uh, and I wish there were more stories about how difficult it was and the types of sacrifices we had to make to to maintain that type of productivity, which is unrealistic. Um, and I think will lead to burnout if it continues like this. So I, I, I hope, I hope administration, the administration is open to hearing these types of concerns, not just here, but at other institutions uh, where people are struggling as well with keeping a research uh, productivity and also uh, uh, you know, having multiple course preps or having to teach a lot of cl- uh, classes or having a heavier teaching load. And there's the human component as well. You have your son, you have your wife, you have a strong commitment to mentoring. And the more students have been able to connect with you as a person who has full life experiences, the more they're able to connect with um, office hours, the more willing they are to to talk with you about maybe different learning styles they have. But the tenure track often squeezes the the time out of us to do those things, those very things that make us a better teacher in our personal life are the things we often, especially if Twitter is being honest with us, uh, academics feel guilty about making the time for. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really surprised me about a tenure track job is the amount of service that's required, uh, especially at an institution um, that's, uh, you know, that, that engages in, 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 in self-governance um, or faculty governance. I, the department does a very good job of protecting uh, young you know, assistant professors and, and sort of giving them assignments that aren't as busy. Um, but still, it's, it's still a, a time commitment that, you know, it's still several meetings that you have to attend. Um, I'm on various committees. But then, as you mentioned, I also have my own sort of drive and what makes me happy as a person. And a lot of that is wrapped up in mentorship because I myself benefited from that. Um, so you have to take additional training. You have to take additional courses. Uh, reach out to different people, and, and that also takes time. Um, so it, it, it's a very, it's a very difficult balancing act, um, and one that I, I wouldn't say I'm 100% successful at. Um, and that's something that I hope in the coming years to to try to strike a balance. But I, I honestly don't know if anybody can. I've heard um, female professors talk about taking life as seasons. That balance is not not a thing. Mm-hmm. We can't balance so many different things at a time. So taking it more as a season. So for, for this 
season, I will focus more on these other things, but not to the exclusion of other things that are important. I won't let them completely fall apart, but they won't be my main focus. And then as another season comes, you move one of the other things into the line of focus and the other ones recede a bit, but not so far that they fall apart. So um, have you heard that philosophy from any of the professors to rather than strive for balance to, to strive to take each thing more as a season? Um, not, not directly. Uh, I think when I first started the job, I actually remember part of my interview um, at dinner, I was talking about, you know, how important balance was uh, to have balance in my life, uh, you know, family stuff, but also like being able to do extracurricular activities and also, you know, X, Y, and Z. After living through 2020, um, it really put things into perspective about what really matters. Um, and I think, you know, academia is, is important, but it's a job. Um, this is part of my job, but I also have a life and you know, my family is a major component of my life. Um, and one of the things that the pandemic has done is it's actually strengthened my relationship with my son even more. Like uh, we're a unit of three and I think that's wonderful. Like the pandemic has brought us close together because we have been in close proximity this entire year and a half. Um, and that's something I wouldn't change for the world. And if it meant that I didn't write another article or I didn't do this or that, um, that it doesn't matter long-term. I, I think what matters to me is those memories that I'll keep with me for the rest of my life, but also that relationship that I've you know, cemented, created with my son. I think that's something that'll carry us through for a lifetime. What lessons of the pandemic do you hope carry forward when we're fully reopened? I would say number one is uh, you know, being open to these, new, to these new technologies. I think at, at times I, I was a bit adverse um, to them. Uh, you know, I had this fear that uh, the university was pushing online education and, and was going to steal our materials and have like robots. It sounds conspiratorial, but, you know, have, <laughs> you know, have our courses on autopilot. Um, I, I think it's, it's kind of opened it up to, to me realizing, OK, that's not what's going to happen. You have some some control over it. At least I, I hope we do. Um, I don't know if I will teach an online course. Um, I, I, I miss too much being in the classroom. Um, so but. I was able to make use of a lot of like things I would never have done, um, like Slack, for example, uh, to stay in communication with my students, especially my graduate students, because I taught um, a, a graduate seminar, and you know they they require more one on one time, and I think that that's why I love teaching those courses is I get more much more student interaction, um, and I was able to stay in contact with them constantly, even much quicker than email. Um, so if they ever had like a, a concern, something wasn't clear, they would comment, but it also helped bring them together. I mean, these are graduate students that started graduate school during the pandemic who had never met each other uh, besides just seeing each other as as people, you know, squares in, you know, over Zoom and having uh, access to Slack. At least it provides a community that they know that they're all going through the struggle and they can be in open communication. And I think that's something that's wonderful. And I would absolutely keep using that. Also, I, I used a lot of I used a software that's very similar to Poll Everywhere. It's called uh, Slido. And it made my discussions over Zoom a bit more interactive. Uh, so I would ask a question. Like on the first day when I teach history in Mexico, I ask, uh, you know, when Mexico, when you think of Mexico, what comes to mind? One word. And it builds a word cloud in instant sort of time. And as these words are populating the image, um, I'm able to pull from them and ask students, you know, why they chose that. And it kind of, it opens them up. It allows them it brings them into the conversation a bit more. Uh, and this also 
works with open-ended questions. Um, they're able to rank films that they watch. So it's a good conversation starter. And that's something absolutely I will, I will keep during the school year. And what is a personal lesson uh, for yourself that you hope to keep from the pandemic when things are fully reopened? Be patient with yourself. Uh, be patient. Uh, it's okay if things don't work out. Um, have faith in yourself as an instructor. Uh, you're good enough. Uh, you're uh, adaptable enough. Uh, I, I would say be okay with chaos. Um, because I think if you are, especially during this moment, things will be a lot better when you don't, when we don't have that, you know, social anxiety that, that the pandemic brought. Um, also to, to take care of yourself. I think it's important to take care of yourself. And I always stress that to my students. Make sure you take some time off. Make sure you step away from the course material. Uh, make sure you do something that makes you happy. Um, and I think uh, that, that that's one of the lessons actually that has really, that, that I really think about and I really try to practice, um, you know, even though it's been really difficult this past year to do so, to, to just take care of yourself, whether that means, uh, you know, playing a musical instrument or even just going on long walks, which I'm sure many of us did a lot of during the pandemic. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Uh, I wouldn't say inspiration. I would say, um, you know, to realize that it's been difficult for everyone in different ways. Um, and, you know, doesn't diminish anybody's experience. Uh, everyone's had to deal with it. Everyone has their own unique situations, but it's been difficult for everyone across the board. And that goes for the professors, that goes for uh, the staff here, and that also goes for the students as well. Um, you know, people have dealt with uh, mental health issues. It doesn't discriminate. Um, and I think that that's something that, that we should be cognizant of, uh, that the pandemic has affected people uh, across the board in different ways, but nonetheless, it has affected everyone. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Pina, and talking with us about lessons from the pandemic. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.